in the very beginning in 2008, the legislature donated lottery dollars to start an organization. And our whole mission and drive was to translate basic research from the universities into products and companies that benefit human health. You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. Jennifer Fox is executive director of Otradi, a nonprofit dedicated to growing the bioscience, health, and wellness startup sector in Oregon. Otradi has grown like crazy since its inception, having hit on a real need for both bioscience infrastructure, like laboratory space and equipment, as well as having it helped create a critical mass of bioscience industry in Oregon. She's done a lot of neat stuff, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. So Otradi, longest name ever, it's Oregon Translational Research and Development Institute. And we are a mission-driven nonprofit institute, and we're funded by the state of Oregon primarily. We were founded back in 2008, and the legislature really wanted to put money into innovation, and they looked at areas of Oregon's economy that they thought had promise um, for future jobs and for innovation, and they chose three areas. They chose bioscience, that's us. They chose nano and microtechnologies, and that's another organization called ONAMI. And they chose built environment sustainable technologies, which is Oregon Best. So that's green tech and clean tech. So in the very beginning, in 2008, the legislature donated lottery dollars to start organization. And I came on as the first scientist. I was their senior scientist at the time. And our whole mission and drive was to translate basic research from the universities into products and companies that benefit human health. And the reason the legislature would care is, obviously they want their citizens to be healthy, but they want there to be companies and jobs. And what they saw was the universities are very smart and full of brilliant people. Um, Basic research is going well, they're getting grants, but there wasn't this flow of translatable products coming out of the university system. So they felt like the universities could use help with that. So when we're first created, our our, our end goal is products and companies. And the way that we helped was to go into the university directly with scientists, talk with scientists at the universities, and find interesting projects that we could put laboratory work into to help develop them into actual commercializable technologies. So I did that for four years. We had a team of scientists do that for four years. And we were laboratory-based. We were really science-focused. Um, But what we found over the years was good ideas will always succeed and come through, and we were helpful in getting those translated out of the university into the community. The roadblock ended up being actual physical space, which I didn't even believe that at the time. So a couple of these startup companies came back and said, I can't find lab space. I can't find incubation space for my company. And after you've heard this three or four times, you start to really pay attention and look into it. So um, we looked at the ecosystem in Oregon and saw there are incubators and accelerators, but none of them were focused on bio. And bioscience companies need special facilities and equipment. So they can't just go into any office park, turn the key, and start their business. They need specialized help. 
So we talked to the universities and asked them if they were going to provide incubation for the companies, um, and they were not. I should say Portland State University has Portland State Business Accelerator, which is a great incubator and has a couple of labs, but uh, their labs are very small and they're not bio-focused. So they're clean tech mixed with a little bit of bio, mixed with all sorts of different technologies. And we talked with the folks at the Portland State Business Accelerator and said, is this something that you think is needed, larger labs and a more focused incubator? And they said, absolutely. So naively, I thought there's a huge need. I know how to work in labs. I've worked in labs for 20 years. How hard can it be to build out labs? <laughs> so we went back to the, the state and asked them for funding and got funding to build out the incubator in 2013. So that is when we founded Oregon Bioscience Incubator. So what, what kinds of projects are these companies working on? Like what's a kind of typical company look like? When we first opened in 2013, we started with six startup companies, and we're now up to 19 startup companies. Um, and I'm amazed at the diversity that exists in technologies here. So we've got everything from a very successful company that's developing an HIV vaccine, who has received venture capital funding recently, um, are doing very well, all the way to people who are producing medical devices for women's health, um, all the way to digital health companies. So we have companies developing wearables um, right now in the same space. Yeah. Um, when you guys were getting everything set up, did you have like a waiting list of companies ready to move in, or was it kind of hard to find? Was it more of a, if you build it, they will come kind of thing? Uh, well, in the very beginning, we had three startup companies that we were working with who all were looking for space. And so that was the seed of why we would build an incubator, is to service these companies. And we knew these guys very well. We had done scientific research with them. We'd worked for, with them for years. We believed in their product and their team. So that was a, a no-brainer to build out space for them. In our first build out of the incubator, we had space for six companies. So if you want to think of it this way, we had it half full with friends and family companies that we knew, and we had to go on faith that we could find the remaining three companies. Um, and we promised our stakeholders in the state that we would have it full in six months, which was kind of a, a guess. Uh, and we had it full in six weeks, and we've been 100% full since 2013. So I thought I had a handle on every startup company in the health space that might need space, and I had no idea. So when the news release came out that we opened, the calls just came in, and we were quickly full and with a waiting list thereafter, and we still maintain a waiting list. Um, and to service that, we went back in 2015 and got more funding to build out an additional amount of space in the building for 12 more companies. So to keep things going, like how much of the funding comes from the state versus like do um, like resident companies uh, like, like pay rent for this or like is there an equity stake that they give up by being here? I, we looked at models from all over the country. So there are bioscience incubators in almost every state and all of them are doing something similarly and many things differently. Our funding situation is that we receive about 80% of our funding from the state of Oregon and the remaining 20% is raised from sponsorships and also the companies who live here do pay rent to be here. 
So the state is subsidizing that rent a bit and then they're paying for the shared equipment and my time and our mentor's time. The companies are really paying for the real estate of the space. And we looked at taking equity in the companies and we still go back and forth on that a bit. It's a tough question. So in the beginning, I felt like we didn't have a track record. We didn't even know there would be this much demand. It didn't seem like we had a case to be made to say, you have to pay rent and we're going to take equity in your company. I feel like now, five years in, we have more of a case to be made that we add value beyond just the space. So we've had companies graduate, raise funding, we've been very instrumental in helping those companies, and we still have this long waiting list. So we may look at taking equity in the future. It's complicated, I feel like we've earned it in a way, but it changes your relationship with the company. So right now, I'm completely 100% on the company's side. I, I want them to succeed. I want to do anything in my power to help them succeed. But they can come to me and be vulnerable because I'm not an investor. I'm not a stakeholder. I am a supporter. I'm a cheerleader. I'm a mom to these guys. I, but I'm not a scary investor. So you might come to an investor if as a last resort if you have a problem because you don't want to admit vulnerability to them. But to me, you could come to me anytime and say, I'm having problems with an employee or I'm having problems raising money or this experiment didn't work and I'm not there to be judgmental. I'm there to be on the company's side. So they feel very free to talk to me right now. I would love to be an investor in that I, that is another way of supporting a company. I just don't want to have an adversarial relationship with the companies. The model that we're looking at perhaps in the future is a very small equity stake that increases over time. So one factor with bio companies that isn't the same as startup companies is that the typical time of bio companies in an incubator is three to five years. So if you think of other startup incubators, if you're doing software, you might be there for six months or a year, but you're not there for three to five years. These companies are here for a long time and there's an argument to be made that every year they're deriving more and more value from being part of an incubator. So we've looked at a model. Why is that? Taking more advantage of specialized equipment or mentoring or meeting investors, all the networking events that we put on, um, us promoting the companies and helping them get press and invitations to pitch at conferences, things like that. So we've looked at a model of perhaps taking a small equity stake that increases year over year. So if you took a 1% stake the first year, 2% the second year, and, and thereon, uh, that may be a model that we would take. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Would it, would it be fair to say like as they grow and can like, as they're able to create more value, like you guys are also able to create more value for them because they're at a point where you have like more leverage with your existing knowledge? Like all of your resources become more valuable, the more valuable they become? Yes, that is absolutely true. So this is truly a case where we were building this as we went. So we were completely building the incubator based on need 
and what these companies needed at the moment. So the first year we were obsessively focused on building out space, making sure the labs were working right, ordering the right equipment. It was very physical space oriented. And every year thereafter, we've added more and more services and skills as we've been listening to the companies and heard what they need. So I think the most important thing we do is be incredibly responsive to the company's needs. So the first line of defense is try and find someone in the community that's doing something that the companies need. And if it doesn't exist, how do we build that? So every year we are building more tools as we go. So we realize that the companies need space, of course. But as soon as they move into the space, they need mentoring in all sorts of capacities. So we've built our mentoring network and increased that over time, threefold over time since the very beginning. And the same thing with our programs. So we used to have one lunch and learn per month, a workshop, if you will, to, to teach people about a, a certain topic. And now we've expanded that to more workshops, to networking events, and to partner with other organizations. So we have built more skills over time as the companies have asked for and prodded us into doing that. So I want to ask about mentoring in a little bit, but um, like, so how do you choose like uh, what companies to have in the incubator? Right. That's a tough one. Uh, in the very beginning, it was easy because, as I said, we felt like we knew all of the companies in the area that needed help, and we knew them very well because we'd done scientific work for them. So if you think about it, we had been involved with the internal workings of their processes over years. So it was very easy to choose those companies, the very first companies we had worked with closely for years. But when companies approach you that you've never met, you don't know their team, you've not been involved in developing that technology, and all of a sudden you have a waiting list of 10 or 20 companies who are looking for space, how do you compare these companies? Um, and our philosophy is really to look at this as the state's profile. So the state is the investor. This is their investment profile in bioscience. So just like an investment profile that you might have, you want to diversify your risk. So you want to get some companies involved in the incubator who are a little farther along, who might have a little bit more funding or be more advanced in their technology so that you can afford to take on a couple of other very small, very seed stage companies that are super risky. And likewise, if you're going to take on a therapeutics company, which typically products that are therapeutics can take 10 years to come to market from uh, the time is of- Is this like drugs? Right. Okay. So if you want to take on a company that's building a new HIV vaccine or a new drug, that might take 10 years before that hits the market. So you want to balance that with companies like digital health companies or healthcare IT companies that are developing a purely software-based product that could come to market within a year or two. Yeah, it's kind of like a laddered approach. It is, it's a mixed approach and a laddered approach. And then in the end, it's also a cultural fit. So we've met with companies before who we just noticed right off of the bat, we're not gonna fit. So I explained to them very well you know, the incubator is a very collaborative space. So you're going to be sharing equipment. You're going to have to sign up to share equipment. There are limited resources. You're also going to be asked to contribute. You're going to be asked to come to networking events and 
come to learning and workshop events um, and not just have the door closed to your lab with your head down and not collaborating with your fellow company. So when these folks sign a lease, they sign a confidentiality agreement so that they can trust that they can ask questions of one another. And we've had amazing collaboration between the companies. So we've had companies file patents together. We've had companies invent technologies that are collaborative together. Um, we've had companies write grants together. Uh, we've had employees go from one company to another company amicably. So we want to encourage that. We want to choose companies who are willing to be part of a collaborative. That's really interesting. I was just talking to a guy yesterday um, who was talking about, um, well, it was like a macro, it's like what you're describing is like a microcosm of this idea where like uh, technology tends to accelerate in these like spurts and like little mm -hmm. clusters. And a lot of times it's even just a geographic cluster, uh, like San Francisco currently is an example, or like over different like eras, it's been different places. Um, ancient Greece was an example that he, he used, or like uh, like the coffee houses of France during the like, Enlightenment or something. Where it seems like you have this like, cool synergy that's starting to happen where you have like a little bit of um, critical mass starting right. to form. Exactly. And that's what we were super excited about was we knew people who are doing very brilliant things in the state, in Oregon, from across the state, but they didn't know each other and they weren't talking to each other necessarily. And it takes getting people into one building. It amazed me how much that really accelerated the progress of, of these guys collaborating together. Because you would go to hear about a company that's working here and that would spark a thought in your mind of, oh, I could use that tool to do X, Y, or Z in my process. And since you live here together with one another and you see this person every day, it's easy to build those bonds or to say, oh, I'm having an issue. Do you know how to purify a, a certain chemical? Um, I know that you're an expert in this. Could you help with that? And it's been amazing to see. It's really neat. Yeah. Um, you gave some like good general examples. Is there anything like, like a, do you have like a in particular favorite uh, like case study of that happening? One of our first companies that moved into the incubator called Absi, they have a process for. Oh, Sean McLean's company. Yes. Yeah, I went to Do you know these? Yeah. Really? I'm like his aunt or something. He, they lived here for. They just moved out about a year and a half. No, a little bit less than a year. About a year ago, uh -huh. over to Vancouver. Yeah. Sean's company, Absi, is a great example. When he first moved in, it was just him. It was a one-person company. Um, and he grew this company to 12 people over the course of three years. And they moved out and graduated successfully when they raised Series A financing, $5.1 million from venture capital folks from Seattle. And they were our first big test case in what do companies need when they succeed? How do they transition from the safe space of an incubator out into the real world? Well, the next step is, what happens when you move out? There's a need for your own lab space. And there are areas of the country where there are great amounts of lab space. San Diego, Seattle, the Bay Area, Boston. They have a long history of having bio companies. So what happens then is companies build out lab space. They might then either graduate from that lab space into a much larger facility or manufacturing facility or they might lose funding and go out of business but there's a churn 
where new companies would then have access to that lab space. Well, we don't have that in Oregon because we don't have that long history of many successful biotech companies. So there isn't that stock of lab space that's available around the state or even in Portland. So when a company like Absi got to be 12 or 13 people and had raised money and they needed more space than we could provide, they were bursting at the seams at our space here. We went out and looked for that next step space and we realized we don't have that yet. So we went to developers and we went to realtors and we went to economic development people to ask them for help because the guys at Absi and myself had never learned how to do this. We'd never faced this problem before. This was a brand new arena and it was for a good reason. It was for growth, but nevertheless, it's a pressing problem. You need space so that you're not limiting the growth of your company. But while Absi was here, their whole reason for being is to um, trick bacteria into making proteins and antibodies that could then become drugs. Complicated process and they have a patent on it and they do it better than anyone. They worked with one of our companies here to help our company develop a biologic or an antibody based drug for treating heart disease. So it's great. You're trying to develop a new drug. You need a better way to purify it. And two doors down the hallway, there's a startup company who does nothing but purify these kinds of things night and day. So they developed a strong collaboration where they could easily produce a prototype of this antibody and then put that into cells. So they could use this hallway connection to really be a tech connection. Yeah. Uh, so how do you measure success uh, for your organization? Uh, well, we have certain metrics that we have agreed to provide to the state. So the state is funding us from lottery dollars. And like I said, they really want to see companies succeed. They want to see jobs. They want to see money that's being raised from outside of the state and being brought into the economy. So that is the measure, the hard quantitative measure that the state sees as success, and I see that as success as well. It's a real endpoint. Um, it's not capturing every single thing that, that works well here, but it's an indication of success. I measure success when I see products being used by consumers and they're improving their lives, improving their health and wellness. That is the ultimate end goal because if it's just technology and it, it could be very interesting and I'm a scientist, so I'm super excited to see lab results, but I want to see this being applied and being used by humans out in the environment. But to do that, they companies have to meet measures of success of hiring folks, raising money, succeeding over the course of years. I mean, I consider companies that can succeed for three years and be patient enough to raise that money to be very successful. Mm -hmm. So what's surprised you in the course of building um, the incubator? Uh, I'm an impatient person, so I think what surprised me is how long it takes to attract attention, to attract investment for our startup companies to gain the kind of traction that they need to succeed. It's surprising to me that if you have a brilliant idea and there's a highly demonstrated need, that it's not easier to raise money. 
that's a very naive and optimistic uh, thing for me to say, but that's been most surprising is just the difficult times that people have raising funding, even if they have a great product. What are like some of the ways that companies can exit? Right. So graduating from the incubator um, or exiting the incubator has come in many different forms. So there are positive ways to graduate in that you could raise money. Most of our companies are grant-funded companies in the very beginning. They receive federal small business grants to help them launch their company, do proof of concept work in the lab, and then get to the point where they can then attract private funding. So the trajectory is really use federal small business grants that are non-dilutive, that you don't have to pay back, that are great to help launch your company. Hopefully within that year or year and a half, you have enough results that you can then go out into the community and begin to raise money. So most companies here have had success in going to angel conferences in the state or in the region or even outside the region, pitching their ideas and getting angel investment for their companies. And that's small investment. Um, it is riskier investment on the part of the investors, but it is investors that believe in a product or believe in the value of a product for mankind in most cases. So our companies have had great success raising angel funding. And the next step is really either pharmaceutical venture capital funding or regular venture capital funding. So good examples are we have had companies who have had enough success that they have raised attention from major pharmaceutical companies who will then provide investment into that company to help progress a product through the FDA process. So we have a company who has a drug in phase one clinical trials. So they're at the very beginning of the FDA process and they've received money from a pharmaceutical company to do that. And the pharmaceutical company then has a front row seat to look at the progress of that drug and see if they want to then eventually come in and acquire that license and, and have that product. That's one route and that's really the pharmaceutical or the drug route. The other route is uh, raising venture capital funding from VC firms, uh, primarily from firms in the Bay Area, Seattle or Boston. And we have had companies have great success at that as well. And that is a VC firm will put a, a large amount of funding into a company so that they can then follow the progress of that product and have dividends from, from the sale of that. And then there's the sad part of um, graduating because you lose funding or because an idea didn't work. So we have seen that too. And as a scientist, that happens all the time. I, I've had great ideas that just didn't work <laughs> because nature is confounding. It doesn't want to comply with your best ideas about how it works. So it's possible that you do everything right and that you have a brilliant idea and it's just not a cure. That happens. Or it's possible you have a wonderful idea, you had some amount of funding, but it wasn't enough runway, it wasn't enough time to get it to the step where it can attract larger funding. It's the real heartbreakers, probably. Very much so. Yeah. Um, what do you think like, makes someone entrepreneurial or like a good fit for um, making that leap from whatever work they were doing and maybe in like academia or you know, OHSU to like, um, really develop that as a company and a product? 
Yeah, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this over the years. Why do some scientists become entrepreneurs and some don't become entrepreneurs? Um, and I think there are many qualities that scientists have that lend themselves very well to becoming an entrepreneur or starting a startup. Uh, and I'm a scientist, so I was thinking in my own brain, why go out on a limb? If you have a great research project going on, you're a professor at a university, why make that giant leap to then also have a startup company? And in most cases, it really is something of a side hustle. So these folks keep their professorial jobs, they keep their academic jobs, and they're maintaining a startup company as well. So it's not that they make the leap to completely changing their career 100%. It's that they're dipping their toe in the water and then their foot in the water and their leg in the water. And in some cases, their students will become the primary drivers of the company and take that career on 100%. And the professors will maintain a bit of a 50-50 relationship with academia and their startup company. So that makes it less risky in a way because you're still drawing a paycheck so you're not relying in, on that as your primary source of income. But it's still risky in that professors and scientists are incredibly busy people, and there's only a certain amount of work that you can do per day. So we do see that occasionally. I think scientists, by their very nature, are curious. They're innovators. They're not afraid to go out on a limb. Your theory or your hypothesis has got to be unique. It's got to be something that no one has thought of. So you're used to going out on a limb. You're used to being publicly staking a claim for an idea. Um, you're tenacious. You're optimistic. But you're used to failure. You're not surprised by failure. So when I've had students in the lab, I tell them, you have to be an incredible optimist to be a scientist because 99.9% .9 of the time, it doesn't work. So you have to be able to come back, assess the data, realize what is going on, look at options, look at what factors you can control and what you can't control, pivot, make changes, realize incremental success. And these are all things that are great for entrepreneurs too. Um, and scientists are all a little crazy, so that helps. <laughs> Interesting, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's actually a lot more overlap than uh, initially would have thought between scientists and entrepreneurs? I think the people don't understand, or it's not widely acknowledged or perceived that scientists are really very creative thinkers. And that's a primary ingredient. It like totally that's the takes. the main thing, yeah. Absolutely. You have to be an incredibly creative thinker and not afraid of failure and not afraid of public failure. So you're standing up at a meeting and a conference or in your department and saying, I have a crazy idea and it might just work. And I'm going to take the next six months to try it out. And then I'm going to come back and publicly report it didn't work or it did work. So they're, they're very creative thinkers and they're very bold. They're optimists. Some would say they're egoists. I would look at it in a better way that they're confident. And I think it's all a skill set that lends well to entrepreneurship. There are some skills that many scientists are not great at that are necessary for successful startups, though. And that's what we help them work on here. In that example, when they fail, um, or like, like, not really fail, but like, like, hey, 
crazy idea didn't work out. Mm -hmm. um, a scientist has a different view of that than like an, an average person would maybe mm -hmm. because uh, you learn something like failures like add to the body of knowledge constantly. So like it's kind of like entrepreneurship in that way too where like there's really no failure as long as like you're able to like take it and like apply that knowledge to like a future Absolutely. So it's learning what parts of your hypothesis failed, changing one thing at a time that you can control, and then looking at whether that made the outcome better or worse, and continuing down this string of ideas until you get to something that is workable. That's completely what science is. And science is inherently collaborative. You have to look at what has become for, before you, there's no shame in building your ideas on what's happened in the past. You must do that. And your whole strive is just to improve a process or in, improve a product. So I think that it has a lot in common. The thinking required for being a scientist and entrepreneur is very similar. The skills that are not necessarily shared are scientists are not always great at being sales people. They're not always great at translating their ideas to the general public. They're not always comfortable being the public spokesperson or face of a product. So we get companies and startups that come here who are doing brilliant work, but they don't have a logo, they don't have a website, they don't have a Twitter account. You know, these are all skills that are new for scientists to learn. And that's where I see that we can add some value is introduce them to people that can help them promote what they're doing and get the word out or put the spotlight on what they're what they're achieving. So what what advice would you give to someone looking at starting their own business, either in bioscience or elsewhere? I mean, all of my advice sounds like 1950s advice, but it is think of the consumer or the customer first. So scientists oftentimes get fall in love with their own ideas and can become very obsessed with um, the brilliance of this idea or the intricate workings of an idea, but you need to look at what the consumer is going to ultimately need. So if you invent a device that is so cumbersome or so expensive that a person was never gonna be able to afford this or use it, you may as well not have done that. So you need to be able to look at the end user and relate to the person who's going to be the beneficiary of that invention and then work back from there. And especially now with healthcare costs rising, you need to look at not only is this something that people would find useful, but who will be paying for it? Are they paying for it themselves, like a Fitbit? Or are insurance companies paying for it? And in that case, know your customer, go to insurance companies and, and, and talk to them about what are they willing to pay for a new medical device. Um, and that's been very important for our companies. And then, do you have any like books or resources that you'd recommend for people? There aren't a lot of great books about for bio-entrepreneurs necessarily, um, but I have two books that I really have found helpful for myself in starting this company and Startup Land by Mikkel Savane. It's a really neat book because it's a very intimate look of people who have started a business who aren't 20-something people, who have real families, and um, it's just a very intimate portrait of what it takes to have a life outside of work 
and start a company. So that one has been very helpful for me. And then the other one I liked was called Your One Word by Evan Carmichael. And it's about developing your own personal motto or your own personal mantra um, that you then can use to uh, encourage yourself over time. So those two have been very helpful. I don't do a lot of business book reading or scientific book reading because I feel like I'm knee deep in it or waist deep, shoulder deep in it here. So I'm more of a science fiction fan <laughs> outside of work. Well, what do you like for from science fiction? Oh, I, I, um, I, my most recent book that I love is Ready Player One. It's awesome. I love it. I love the classics. I love Brave New World. That's really how I got interested in, in studying science. I mean, a, mil a million fantasy there, books there as well. I'm a science nerd, for yeah. sure. <laughs> there are a ton. Well, th thanks so much for sharing your time with me today. I Thank learned you. a lot. I think other people will get value out of it. I think they'll enjoy it. It's a cool perspective that you bring to it. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. You can find more about Otradi at otradi.org. It's otradi.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Podcast to get more entrepreneurial tidbits throughout your day. Also, let us know what you think by leaving a review in the podcast app. Any feedback is good feedback. If you have any ideas for guests or show improvements, or really anything that you want to talk to us about, you can leave a message in the contact form at nicholaspeel.com under the list of episodes on that main page. Producer for this episode is Nick Woodbury. The music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, who disappeared for a couple weeks after looking up Area 51 in Google Maps. They have an event coming up on April 11th in Eugene, Oregon. So be sure to check out their Facebook page for more details on that if you're interested. You can listen to their stuff today, though, on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and cepdx.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>